First Time Feelings is a monthly podcast hosted by two Melbourne women exploring universal human experiences via micro-narratives based on first-time feelings. Whether it be shame, guilt, longing, anxiety or lust, each anecdote is an honest, witty and relatable vignette that taps into the messy human journey we're all on. Naming and reclaiming emotion, one feeling at a time. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of First Time Feelings. My name is Crystal and this is Ruth. Hi. And we're here to go down memory lane, casually psychoanalyzing our first time feelings in the hope of understanding our emotions better and claiming our own personal narratives. Thin skin, bones that break, cells that multiply and mutate. The body is a potential minefield of medical injuries, some emanating from within, genetic legacies, cellular mysteries, some from outside. We lose part of ourselves, parts that really matter, but still we survive. Those we love hurt us most. We survive. We are strongest when we surrender to our vulnerability to admit when we are fragile. I would quote Natalie Imbruglia's Torn, but this one's been pretty heavy for both of us. We felt challenged and a little torn about the reveal. For both of us, this is maybe the first time we've spoken about these experiences. Just a trigger warning for listeners of this episode. This episode will contain themes of violence and sickness. So please consider this before you listen. I was one of the smallest in my grade one class, except for Matthew. He was very petite. His grey shorts went well below his knee and he was very tanned with many moles all over his face and arms. I think because he was the only boy in my class who was small like me, I both loved and hated him. I remember giving him a Chinese burn for absolutely no reason and realising how tiny and frail his little wrists were, bird-like. I wanted to snap them. In fact, I think Matthew made me realise I had slightly sadomasochistic tendencies towards those I love. Kids teased us and said we were in love. Matthew was a kind of mirror for me. I projected my own hateful fragility, my physical puniness, onto him. My brother was four years older than me and physically much stronger. He too had a sadistic streak. I was forced to undergo unnecessary dental surgeries think rubber gloves, strings, slam doors. Once he told me to eat a cool mint from the floor of my mum's closet. It was actually a mothball. And then he told me I had 60 seconds to live. Or when he told me during a gastro chuckathon that I had literally vomited a lung up. I took the blame for his perpetual clumsiness, the broken glasses and vases, the antique lamp that was a gift from my mum's favourite recently deceased brother, And I allowed him to cut me with the broken glass so we would elicit extra sympathy when my mum came home. We were best friends, but also on his terms. By 1990, our sibling tensions had become somewhat nuclear. We were living in a one-bedroom flat in Queens, sharing a pull-out couch. My brother and I literally kicked each other to sleep most nights. We didn't go to school. We had no friends except each other and MTV. I'd been teasing him about his girlfriend, Alice, whom he'd left behind in Ireland, his first love. It was a normal sibling fight, but what happened next was not. To this day, he cannot admit it was not an accident. 
He has apologised, but with conditions. He maintains he slipped on a rug and his heavy Sony Walkman flew out of his hand and hit me head on. The blow rendered me unconscious. I remember the liquid sensation of waking, not knowing it was blood in my eyes and mouth. Black. Screaming. Screaming that came from me. He was very afraid. Panicked. And yet he intoned over and over, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't tell mum, please don't tell mum, I love you, don't tell mum. I couldn't see for a few minutes. And all I did was scream. For weeks after, people would come up to me on the street and ask if I'd been in a car accident. At the hospital, they said I was millimetres away from being blinded, and I have no idea how I escaped a broken cheekbone and only got four small stitches and a scar that never faded. For my brother, I was a Matthew, diminutive, lovable, but worthy of contempt for my physical inferiority. And since that day, I have realised that fragility is to be protected. It sounds like you were really quite hurt, like yeah. very hurt, yeah, bleeding, and um, which is really full on. I mean, obviously, it changed from being like child's play to being some real aggression yeah. there. Yeah. So, do you have trust issues with your brother now? Like, what happened as a result? You know, do you put it down to just something that he did? in a moment of kind of, um, you know, just w- primal kind of instincts, animalistic kind of behaviour coming? No, I mean, it was a pattern yeah. of behaviour. Like I remember even being in the lift in um, the apartment and my brother kicking me over and over and over and over again with his like Doc Martin boots and he had like steel caps um, or like grabbing my leg and hitting it against the railing like seven times or something. So he was furious and he had a lot of rage and a lot of trauma but it was just like a cycle it was like my dad was like that to him my brother was Mm. like that to me um he was getting beaten up in school he took that out on me but my mum and you know my family I think what troubles me about it because it wasn't a normal incident um, there was a, a real conspiracy of sort of silence surrounding it. Like it was a joke, like he slipped on the Walkman and there was lots of jokes about, you know, death by music and stuff. But really, I was really, really wounded. And, um, you know, I was in an emergency room. Um, I was nearly blind. Um, I have no, like I said, I have no idea how my cheek didn't break because it was one of those full old Sony Walkmans and it was mm. hurled. There was no way it was an accident. Um, so yeah, definitely wasn't a momentary, um, thing. Yeah. Um, and I think probably because it had been painted as a sort of, not a jolly incident, but with a bit of, um, like family joke sort of element to it that I didn't really realize quite how bad that was until I sat down and wrote it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really intense incident and I I personally don't have any siblings but I can imagine if I had been in that position I would have had a lot of trouble for a long time trusting yeah well my I had a boyfriend when I was um 20 1920 um and I remember we were breaking up and um there was a couple of little weird things that had happened um you know when we we're drunk he kind of threw me across the room but like it was 
you know, it was an accident. And then we were having a fight and he wanted to get away from me. And I remember him stamping on my foot seven times. And like, um, I say that because it was like, you know, bang, 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 bang. Mm. And I had, um, you know, bare feet. And that's not like a punch in the face. But to me, that was like, I know what that means. I know what that is. And I, I've never yeah. been with anyone after that, you know, I felt... Well, I have actually, but I, you know, I ended it immediately kind of thing. Um, that that kind of aggression meant something, that it would escalate what it meant, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I definitely, um, I think even though that that happened to me and I had probably issues towards, you know, being attracted to people that were probably quite bad for me or didn't treat me very well, I still preserved myself on some level I knew that I wouldn't end up with someone like that. And in fact, I've had, you've met some of them. I've had some pretty lovely boyfriends too. Um, And, um, you know, really decent partners that, you know, I've really Mm. trusted, um, you know, so that hasn't been an ongoing sort of issue. Yeah. So you were saying that actually until you wrote the piece, you weren't 100% sure if that was like, you know, an act of violence against you or an accident? Like, Well, I always knew it wasn't an accident, but yeah. I think more that how wrong that was because yeah. I think violence had been normalised within my family. So um, it wasn't, the boundaries weren't established. Yeah. Um, so it was sort of like a, that, like I said, a conspiracy of silence. So I think also because of, you know, what I'm writing my exegesis, um, uh, for my PhD, uh, I'm doing a lot of life writing and, um, you know, naming things and realising things aren't normal um, that I formerly probably processed as being just, you know, um, one of those things. And, um, yeah. yeah, so it, it, I guess, like, when that's your culture um, that you come from, there's an intellectual knowing, but also, like, I think with trauma, you try to forget really quickly and mm. you brush over things and gloss over things, romanticize things or make them, you try to neutralize them. Yeah. Because yep. you don't want that to be true or you, you know, you don't want to hold on to the, that image of, yeah. Because yeah. once you kind of acknowledge that it's a trauma, then it's like, oh, well now I guess I should deal with what that means. And you have and to deal with the, the implications. Yeah. And the, um, yeah, implications. I yeah. think then that also means confrontation. Yeah. And I think also because I understood and I always had that from a young age, an understanding of why people behave that they did, the, my family um, specifically, I think I had a lot of that, you know, and I was taught Christ-like forgiveness, you know, mm. um, turn the other cheek. But in those circumstances, it was not to my benefit. Yeah. Well, hopefully talking about it um, has helped, but... I think it does. I think it really does because it's, if anything, um, like I said, with the the exegesis that I'm writing, I spoke to my supervisor and I guess I asked her for tips to navigate that really treacherous sort of stuff because you feel very, and when I say treacherous, you feel treacherous, you feel traitorous when you bring family secrets to life because there's a kind of, it's almost like you're in a mafia, like there's a code of silence. Mm. And so she said to me, you know, I interrogate my own silence. And I was like, that's what I need to do. And once you name things and you say it aloud and say, you know, this really did happen to me, you, you do, you've done such a great service to yourself. So I think it's a really mm. a huge journey towards like your own self-development and self-love. It might hurt other people, 
but who's more important, you know, than you? Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's you know, there's a lot of power I think in um, just speaking the truth about what has happened. Yeah, and, you know, our generation and you know the generation that's coming after us i think are getting a lot better at going you know just because the family is an institution doesn't mean that it should be protected and yeah. allowed to behave that's right in ways that are inappropriate um in private like yeah. which you know no one should be allowed to act like that whether it's in the confines of a family or any institution that's so. right yeah i agree with that i think naming it as the first step and kind of changing those dynamics yeah. and behaviours. Yeah. Definitely. Orientation took many minutes. Adjusting to the harsh fluorescent lights, I began to piece my surroundings together. People were moving in and out of the room, checking tubes, adjusting catheters, placing things on the table next to me. There were flowers everywhere, balloons, cards... I was wrapped up tight in the bed. The hospital corners pulled taut to ensure little movement of the subject within. I squirmed and pain shot through my whole body, taking me by surprise. I darted my eyes around looking for help. When I noticed a little button on a cord next to me, it must be there for a reason. So I pressed it and a flood of relief gushed through me. I tried to sit up. My arms were weak, but I managed to pull myself up and look under the bed covers at my abdomen. It was covered in a large piece of plastic wound bandage. I touched it gingerly and traced the wound underneath. I could feel it from my belly button all the way down to where my pubic hair started. My abdomen felt inexplicably distant, like somebody else's body. The curves and bumps that normally felt so familiar felt foreign. My stomach sagged down where it had never done before. Whose body was this? I felt a strong push and pull of emotions as I flipped between wanting to explore this changed physical body and staying as far away from the actuality of this new body as I could. I sank back into the pillow for a while, pressed the pain relief button and rested my mind. I didn't have to come to grips with whatever had happened right at this very moment. In the twilight zone, I could relax. I could push confrontation, change, consequence, acceptance and all those other impending emotions that would form my future reality into the back of my mind. Let them drift off one by one into the ether of my unconsciousness to be dealt with at some other time. During these days, and I assume they were days, but really I can't recall, as I was riding a wave of morphine, shock and fatigue, I lost all concept of time. I had a faint memory of how I had arrived in the hospital but my consciousness was very much fixated on the immediate. A few days may have passed, but it could have been a matter of hours. I'd been left alone for some time. I could tell that at least. Night must have passed and morning heralded the arrival of hospital staff. A nurse, an orderly, a doctor. The doctor was looking at me trying to get my attention. I had trouble focusing, my eyes perpetually blinking beneath the light. Adjustment. Physical, mental, emotional, felt like an ill-fitting garment that I could not feel comfortable in. I could see it there in front of me. I needed to put it on. It was the only way forward, but I just wanted to stay still and static, wrapped in my white cocoon, drip in my arm, pain button at arm's reach, a flurry of activity around me. 
I wasn't ready to face whatever had happened. But I did not have a choice. Finally, his eyes locked with mine. I don't remember his name or any of the hospital staff's names. They're all just characters in a movie I don't recall very well anymore. Hey, you're back with us. Now you're going to be very sore. We've had to remove your large intestine, he says. I heard what this stranger was saying, but it didn't make sense. The words inferring this news about my body weren't connecting with how I made sense of the world and my body in it. Are you going to put it back in? I asked. He laughed awkwardly. No. I stared back blankly and coldly. I 100% did not know that a human being could survive without a large intestine, and it seemed awfully irresponsible that they would take one of the major components of my digestive system out and not return it. I turned away, my back to the bearer of this news. I clutched my stomach. It felt raw and hollow and incomplete. I was 25 years old and I'd never thought about my body in this kind of detail. I'd never considered all the parts working away under my skin, these integral pieces of my anatomy, crucial to the functioning of my bodily processes. I'd never thought about them inside of me, and I'd never considered what the implications of their removal would be. His words felt coarse. They grated against the protective haze of my newly formed cotton wool world. I asked the doctor to leave. That was enough news for one day. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty heavy. Um, I guess, like, I know these are kind of like a bit mundane questions, but how did you come to get to hospital? You said you remembered how you arrived, but... Yeah, um, so the night before, I guess I have to go back a little bit because this is a real kind of snippet with not much of a reveal of um, of actually, you know, wh- why I got there and what had happened. Um, but I had a stomach ache for a number of months before um, I ended up in hospital. Mm-hmm. And I'd been to the doctor, you know, three to four times. And every time I went, they were just like, there's nothing wrong with you. Everything is fine. Maybe you're constipated. And I would sort of always say... I'm not constipated. I would know. I would tell you, but I, I'm I'm not. I don't think that's the issue. And um, but you know, I kept going, and they kept saying there's nothing wrong with you. So I didn't really know what else to do other than put up with it and yeah. go back when it got bad. And um, the, so the night before I ended up in hospital, it was really super painful, and I was sort of complaining of it all night, and it got to the point where, you know. My then boyfriend took me to the chemist and we tried to buy some pain relief and I couldn't really eat anything so we bought some soup and came home and sort of took the pain relief which really didn't do anything yeah. and then tried to um, uh, have some soup for dinner and I couldn't even keep that down. Like it, it was really quite strange. It was kind of like I would swallow the soup and it wouldn't, it wouldn't go down. Yeah, yeah. Like it... um. It just kind of like, it got halfway down into my stomach and then I would just throw it up. Yeah. But it wasn't getting into my stomach. And the same thing was happening with um, water. So I would yeah. drink water and it would go down my esophagus, guess, just, guess, don't know. Um, and then it would just come straight back up. 
And at that point, it felt pretty weird, like, because it wasn't really proper vomiting. Yeah. It was just like... Like a blockage It was something. like a blockage. Yeah. And, um, and by then I was in a lot of pain. So, yeah, my then boyfriend took me to hospital, mm -hmm. um, to emergency. And by the time I got to emergency, I was in so much pain. I was just lying, um, you know, doubled up on this bench um, with a bucket next to me because mm. I kept wanting to kind of... I, would dr I was thirsty, so I'd drink water, but then I would throw it up. And, um, yeah, so that's how I kind of ended up in mm. hospital. And they did give me some morphine once I was in there, before I even got seen to, because it was a really... Yeah, busy... it was obvious you were in a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah, it was obvious, but I still had to wait, you know. It's just like yeah. emergency is like that. There are yeah. people that have had car accidents. Yeah. Um, it's all just judged on a scale of yeah. severity. And, they probably um, thought you had like gastro or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but eventually I got in and I was seen to and I had and I had a few x-rays. But even these memories are quite hazy because I think I was already on so much pain relief yeah. that um, I don't fully remember. I just know I got some x-rays and I was really quickly told you've got to have surgery um you've got to have surgery like immediately and even then I think you know I was quite naive about it I was just like so like when you say immediately you mean like like next week or like in, the yeah. in the morning like yeah. I definitely thought at least in the morning yeah. because I think it was um you know it was about like 3 a.m by that point and they were like no right now um and they didn't know what was wrong with me they just said that you've got some kind of blockage it's mm -hmm. in your uh, large intestine and it's going to rupture it if we don't yeah take so it that's out pretty 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 serious yeah 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 so they operated in the middle of the night and then I kind of woke up yeah I don't even know like if I woke up the next day it's all just such a blur and mm. it's quite a long time ago now as well um, yeah of course yeah so like nearly I woke, 10 years yeah nearly yeah. 10 years and I woke up and was just completely unaware of what had happened because I didn't you know they didn't give me a full kind of outline of like yeah it's in emergency it's all happening so quickly yeah like they kind of just said look you've got some kind of blockage we don't know what it is it's in your large intestine it's got to come out now so mm -hmm. I was expecting to kind of wake up and... They'd remove a blockage. Yeah, whatever that yeah, was. Yeah, But it's not what happened. And, and you know, I think in the end it was absolutely for the best. Of course, um, yeah. Because the blockage was, you know, it was a tumour, it was cancer. Yeah. And so taking that out is way more effective than, um, you know, most treatments, like just removing a, a tumour in its, um, like completeness like is the best thing that you can yeah do but obviously I didn't know any of that at yeah. the time and even the first round of doctors didn't tell me that they just kind of said you know you've just been through an operation and I think because it's a big announcement to tell a 25 year old that you've got of cancer yeah yeah a tumor it's like one step at a time you've already lost your um large intestine you know and so yeah, exactly. Um, but the first couple of days, I just, you know, I woke up from feeling, you know, I had been in pain the night before and 
I just did not know it was going to be anything so serious yeah. or, um, you know, like I'm okay now just for the listeners. Yeah. I am cancer free, um, although under surveillance all the time. But yeah, at, you know, when that was um, all happening, like it was such a massive shock because yeah, yeah I was 25. I was so young and whilst the stomach ache had been quite painful. Like I really, that was like the last thing I possibly thought. Because it's like IBS or something. (laughs) Or yeah, like maybe an ulcer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm sure also because of your age, you know, you don't get kind of things like bowel scans and, um, mm. you know, I mean, that's a, they probably should have done a colonoscopy, but you know. They definitely should have, yeah. Yeah, but. That said, I mean, it, it is understandable that it could have been undetected like that. And when, um, you know, after those couple of days of, of that sort of sense of shock, because, you know, you go through all those stages, um, when did you start to feel like your body was whole again? Oh, <laughs> um, not for a long time because I went home and, you know, it was quite a long recovery process. Like... Not just because of that surgery, but I had that surgery and I had to um, be very sort of mindful of my abdomen for at least a couple of months. But very quickly, I had to have another surgery um, where I had part of my liver removed. And that was not long after. Like, Mm -hmm. I think as soon as I was recovered from From that surgery, yeah, yeah, the colectomy, I had to have um, this other surgery. So... I don't think, and then after that, I had to have six months of chemo. So I think it took at least a year, I think, to feel normal and yeah. to feel also like my body had readjusted. So yeah. that kind of like emptiness feeling, which was really strange for a while. Like, I think I only felt the real intense, like, something is missing for the first couple of weeks yeah because your body very quickly rearranges you know like yeah. after someone has a baby it's like yeah all the organs kind of um shift around they shift around yeah. and, and the body's pretty amazing like yeah that, that it um it can feel normal again yeah. but it was very very bizarre it was kind of abstract as well because even though the large intestine plays like a role obviously because we have one it's not as integral as a lot of other body parts so it's like most of your water um, absorption happens in the large intestine and the body will kind of um, adapt to to absorb the water in your small intestine and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other like functions that I'm not entirely 100% aware of that the small intestine starts to kind of just take over that roll and obviously like the first couple of weeks while my body was um, adjusting like eating was completely different you know things were just going through me yeah there's like two meters of intestine that were missing so after a while that stuff adjusts but yeah you know I think this piece that I wrote is really kind of focused on just like just kind of realizing that you are human that you have all these um yeah you know, internal organs and parts of you that are very fragile and they're working together yeah. in this system yeah, absolutely. that keeps you alive. Yeah. And you don't really think about that when you're young. Especially when you're a young woman. I mean, I think um, so much of the body is like sexualized or like as this vehicle, you know, well, 
it's like the way that we conceive of ourselves is like, you know, our attractiveness. But also like, especially when you're in your 20s, it's like, what can it do? Can it do this activity? Can it, you know, go to the gym, dance and, you know, take you around? But you, you kind of take all of that stuff for granted. Mm. And then when you realise, especially I think um, um, a, an experience of extreme pain like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I sort of tossed up between that and the piece that I wrote and a piece of having like surgery also um, on my uterus and the pain that I experienced during following that because it was like a botched surgery. I remember before that I'd really suffered from body image stuff and I was kind of a compulsive exerciser. I'd gotten over an eating disorder um, from years before that but I still always thought of myself, my value and my body in terms of what it could look like you know like how attractive it was yeah and but it was never good enough you know and then after that I had this sense of like oh my god um just to just to be alive to not be in pain like Mm. um you know just for my organs to work like it was just like this new appreciation yeah um as well as like trauma because of its fragility and also that fear of like maybe the doctors can't fix it or like yeah you know I'm I'm mortal like what happens if I die, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess something that isn't, you know, there were many emotions that I think I was experiencing during this time and post-surgery. And while the immediate emotion was definitely feeling fragile, you know, there's a lot of positive stuff that came out yeah. of that. And I think maybe something to consider when, like, we're talking about this emotion is that sometimes you know one emotion is a catalyst for another emotion and I think um, that you know there was also a lot of strength that came out of that as well because it made me realize I was like okay while I am really fragile like I also had the ability and luckily because I was quite young to heal and to get better and to build my physical body back up to being quite strong again yeah which um it's miraculous it is and at the time like you know lying in a hospital bed at that age and being really super confused about what has happened like you know I definitely didn't think that was a possibility and I think that's really exemplified by that comment I made like yeah if I'm not whole like if I don't have this specific organ like what what is going to happen like I kind of you know for the first couple of Um, maybe the first sort of two days before I had a really um, detailed discussion with one of the doctors, you know, I was really unsure, like, what does this mean? Like, what can I eat? How physical can I be? Like, will I recover from this giant scar that is down the middle of my stomach? Like, what does this all mean? Like, so I think mentally, you know, and I think this piece is very much about not just physical fragility, but about mental fragility and emotional fragility as well. Like all the different you know, that was manifesting in various aspects of of myself. And navigating, like, pity too. Like, people, um, people become, you know, people care about you, people are distressed, but there also there's this sort of thing where it's like hushed words like cancer, you know, and like mm. be, people having people feel sorry for you and wanting when you're a strong person or you're in control to have to kind of concede to that and like not concede to it but 
to process that because it's sort of like you don't ever want to be in the position when you're when you're like that you're independent you're yeah to, to have people a caring for you but also be like kind of like oh I'm so sorry you know yeah exactly you poor thing I don't know I wouldn't be able to do that and it's like well you would <laughs> <laughs> because you'd have to <laughs> you'd have no choice yeah yeah well that was wonderful um if not you know harrowing I hope that it made you sort of process that experience yeah um, no I definitely think it new way or it did and I certainly haven't written about that experience in that level of detail yeah um before yeah it did it felt good yeah likewise and I loved hearing it um so I guess that's the end of um our episode uh you've been listening to first time feelings you can stream our podcast from Apple Podcast or anywhere you stream your podcasts. You can find us on Instagram at First Time Feels Podcast. Tell your friends to listen. Just don't tell our mums. Mm-hmm.